Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. The Peter Schiff Show. On Wednesday, we got the release of the Federal Open Market Committee's minutes and As usual, the FOMC is indicating that as long as the economy continues to evolve, according to their forecasts, that it would be appropriate to remove some additional accommodations soon. And I guess the markets are assuming soon is in about three weeks. When the Fed meets in June, everybody anticipates that the Fed will hike rates again, actually raising interest rates all the way back up to 1%, right? That would be the new floor on rates, which basically was the lowest that rates got during the Greenspan era that gave us the housing bubble and ensuing financial crisis. And it's taken a long time even to get back up to that insanely low level of interest rates. But everybody still assumes, I think the probability is near 100% that the Fed is going to raise rates in June. But what I thought was interesting about those minutes, and nobody's talking about this, but in the minutes, the Federal Reserve said that they're also looking for proof that the weak economic data from the first quarter was transitory and that they're looking for proof in order to continue to raise rates. And I'm thinking, well, if the Fed says they need proof that the first quarter data was transitory, are they actually going to get that proof by the June meeting? I mean, if they don't have the proof yet, are they going to have it by June? I mean, in fact, almost all the economic data that has come out recently, including this week, has been pretty bad on balance. In fact, the data that we're getting confirms to me that rather than being transitory, 
the weakness in the first quarter is likely to continue. Really, if, we're, if, if it's transitory at all, it's because we're transitioning into recession. And so if the Fed is looking for proof that the economic data was transitory, thus far they haven't gotten any. And if, they, if they're truthful, if they actually need the proof prior to raising rates, then maybe they're not going to raise rates in June. But the market doesn't seem to even give that a possibility. Maybe it's because the Fed is you know, claiming to be data dependent, yet they've ignored data ever since the first rate hike. And so now they're saying, well, the data that we're depending on is data that is going to provide proof that the first quarter weakness is transitory, and maybe the markets aren't buying that. And they're saying, well, you know, we think the Fed's going to raise rates regardless of whether or not there's any proof, uh, because even if there's not proof, they're likely to pretend that, uh, that there is. Well, if the Fed doesn't raise interest rates in June, it is going to shock the markets. In fact, I think the dollar is poised to decline even if the Fed raises rates. I think gold is poised to rise even if the Fed raises rates. But if it doesn't, obviously those moves will be even bigger because the markets are completely prepared for a, another hike. But also what's interesting about the Fed's remark that they're looking for proof that the weakness was transitory is that this is the first time they've admitted that they want proof. I mean, they've been confidently declaring. They said, oh, it's transitory, right? We don't have to worry about it. And in fact, the Fed even said now they don't think it's a result of seasonality. They don't think it's just kind of a seasonal quirk in the GDP. They just think it's a temporary slowdown in consumer spending. Well, how do they know it's temporary? What if it's permanent? What if it's the beginning of a trend? Now they're saying, well, I guess we don't know for sure. We're waiting for evidence. Well, they haven't gotten any evidence. But now they're admitting that they want evidence. Well, if they don't get evidence, are they going to raise interest rates in June? We'll see. Meanwhile, look at the economic data that's come out this week. I think the weakest data was the data from yesterday. We got the trade deficit for the month of April, which is the first month of the second quarter. And it was a much larger deficit than the one that they had anticipated. In fact, they revised higher the March deficit. That one went from $64.8 billion to $65.1 billion. But the April deficit, which the estimate was 64.6, that came in at 67.6. So a big jump in the trade deficit, that subtracts from GDP. On the same day, we got inventories, retail and wholesale inventories, which were supposed to expand, and instead they contracted rather sharply on both fronts. Now, one of the reasons that Q1 GDP was so weak is because inventory was declining, because consumers aren't spending. The big hope was that the inventory left numbers would really snap back in the second quarter. Well, so far, the data shows that not only are they not snapping back, they're getting weaker. So, that number is also going to take away from GDP because the inventory accumulation gets added into GDP. So now you have um, inventories going down and trade deficits going up, both of which are going to reduce GDP. We also got durable goods orders out earlier this morning. They were down uh, in the month of April, and even if you strip out uh, transportation, they were down. The market was looking for up 0.4. We got down 0.4. So all the numbers that we're getting, I mean, there's a, there's a few here and there that aren't weaker than expected, 
but most of them are. I mean, the macroeconomic surprise index continues to make new lows. Every day we keep getting surprised by more weak economic data. Well, again, if the Fed says they're looking for proof that the weakness in the first quarter was transitory, not only has that proof not been provided, but evidence to the contrary. The evidence that we're getting suggests that it's not transitory, uh, that it's here to stay, that it's the beginning of a trend. Now, we did get a, a positive revision to the estimate for first quarter GDP, which, if anything, might mean that the second quarter will be even weaker than is currently forecast because part of the strength in the second quarter was based on a rebound from the weakness in the first quarter. Well, now the government is telling us that the first quarter is not as weak as we thought. They were at 0.7 initially. That was the estimate before. And now they're up to 1.2. So we've had a significant increase in the first quarter estimate for GDP. Now, the Atlanta Fed did come out today and revise down their estimate for Q2, but they were they were at 4.1. That was a crazy number. So now they're down at 3.7, which is almost as crazy as 4.1. So I still think the Atlanta Fed is, you know, their estimate is, uh, you know, pie in the sky. And I think they have a long way to go down. But one of the interesting things about the revision today that we got for Q1 is where it came from. And the big jump was in consumer spending. So now the government is saying that consumers spent a lot more than we initially thought. Well, if you drill down into the numbers, you'll see that about half of it came from utilities and food. So consumers spent more on their electric bills right, or in on groceries than was originally believed. Now, why is that? Is it because people are eating more or they're just, you know, deciding to run their air conditioners at a, at, a, at a lower temperature or whatever they're doing? I don't think so. Obviously, if people are spending more on utilities and food, it's probably because the prices are going up, right? So that's really not a good sign that consumers were forced to spend more money on necessities in the first quarter. But the more interesting number had to do with spending by nonprofits or charities. There was a huge increase in the amount of money uh, from charities that consumers supposedly spent really on these charities. Because what the, what these this, this category has to do with is where nonprofits give away things to poor people without charging them. So for example, if I'm a food bank and I just give away free food to people who show up, right? There's no actual money that changes hands. Nobody, the consumer hasn't actually bought any food from me. I, I gave it to them for free. But for the purpose of GDP, the government is going to assign a value for that food. And the value they assigned is whatever it cost the charity to give the food away. So what they're doing is not really a me measuring what consumers are spending, but what charities are spending in order to give stuff to consumers for free. Now, that seems like a really, really weak way to generate GDP growth, right? The economy looks stronger because Americans were poorer and they went to food kitchens or they went to charities and they got more free stuff. And now the government counts the stuff that consumers got for free as an increase in consumer spending. Well, I didn't spend anything. They got stuff and they spent nothing. But the government somehow calculates that and backs it into the GDP, which is another reason that all these GDP numbers are ridiculous, right? But 
nonetheless, they uh, they threw that in there. So to me, the reasons for the increase in GDP is because consumers were poor enough to need more free stuff from charities, and they were unfortunate enough to have to spend more money on utilities and, and food. So to me, things seem pretty bad. And of course, you know, 1.2% GDP growth is still a very weak first quarter, but I don't think we're going to have anywhere near the rebound that the markets or the Fed seems to be counting on for the second quarter, because so far the data is coming in and it shows that the second quarter also looks like it's going to be a weak quarter. Donald Trump was in the news today. Well, he's in the news pretty much every day. But one of the reasons that he was in the news today is he was talking about the bad Germans and they're bad because they're selling us all these cars, right? They're, they're really, really bad. And Donald Trump is pointing out how bad they are because they've, they've sold us all these cars. And Donald Trump said that, you know, we need to do something about that to stop all this badness, right? We need to prevent the Germans uh, from selling us all these cars. And of course, you know, this is all ridiculous. I mean, first of all, it's not the Germans who are selling us cars. It's Americans who are choosing to buy German cars. I mean, Germany can't force an American to buy a car. I mean, they have, they have no power to make Americans buy German cars that they don't want. What's happening is the German, the Americans want to buy the German cars. And because the Americans want to buy them and they have the money to pay for them, well, Germany is selling us the cars. I mean, why not? Although technically, Americans don't actually have the money to pay for these cars. We're borrowing the money. Automobile loans are going through the roof, which is also part of the irony because a lot of this debt is being used to buy imported cars. I mean, so why isn't Donald Trump mad at the Fed? Because the reason that Americans are buying so many German cars is because interest rates are so low. If auto loans were more expensive, then Americans wouldn't be buying as many German cars. But I mean, actually, that's veering from the course that I'm on. I mean, I guess that's a whole other story about that. I just want to get back to the idea that the Germans are bad for selling Americans cars that Americans want to buy. It's the American buyer who is driving this, not the German seller, because it's the American that makes the decision. I mean, Germany's there, right? BMW has cars. Americans decide if they want to buy them or not. And Germany, the seller, just reacts to what the buyer is doing, right? The seller can't do anything without the buyer. Once the buyer decides he wants to buy the car, then there's a deal. So it's the American that's in the driver's seat here. So when Donald Trump is saying that the Germans are bad for selling Americans cars, what he's really saying is Americans are bad for buying German cars. And when Donald Trump says that he wants to stop this, what he really wants to stop is Americans from buying German cars or maybe Japanese cars or any imported cars. And what is he really talking about? He's talking about eliminating freedom, eliminating choice. See, I am pro-choice in all aspects, meaning that I believe Americans should be free to choose the cars they want to buy. If they want to buy a car that's made in America, then let them buy that one. If they want to buy one that's made in Germany, then they have the right to do that. They're free. Individual Americans can spend the money that they earned any way that they want to, on anything that they want to, and it's not up to the government to punish them or try to you know, force them to do things that they don't want to do. But when Donald Trump says we need to stop 
the Germans from selling cars to Americans, what he really means is we need to take away the freedom from Americans to buy the cars that they want and make them buy the cars that the government says they need to buy. And this is the way the media should be talking about it. I mean, no one seems to be bringing up this point that this is, you know, this is not how you make America great again by eliminating our freedoms, by eliminating our liberty and having the government trying to force Americans to do things that they don't want to do. Right. Because if Americans wanted to buy more American cars, they would do it. Right? They're only buying German cars because they believe they're getting a better deal. Either they think the car has higher quality or it's a lower cost or some combination of both. And believe me, a lot of Americans probably do a lot of research before they buy a car. And there's certainly a lot of cars to choose from. And a lot of them are imported. Some of them are made domestically. But, you know, it's up to Americans to choose. And what Donald Trump wants to do is eliminate choice. And it's not Americans being bad because the Germans are making good cars. But that's the way Trump is actually saying. But he doesn't want to come out and say the Americans are bad because that's not good politics. So he says the Germans are bad. But the reality is they're not bad. They're making good cars. And Americans are deciding to buy those good cars. And that doesn't make them bad. That just makes them smart. That just means they're exercising their freedoms to spend the money they earned on the products that they choose. And Donald Trump says, I want to take away those freedoms. Now, he can't use those words because that's bad politics. But that is, in effect, what he is saying. You know, and there are people, too, I know that listen to these podcasts and they, hey, I don't want you to talk about politics because I I listen to the podcast for the markets or economics. Believe me. This type of politics, the potential for a trade war, which we're going to lose, right? The only way that Trump can stop the Americans from buying German cars is to put big taxes on those decisions to artificially increase the price of German cars such that Americans can't afford to buy them or they end up buying a less expensive car that isn't subject to the tax. But to the extent that Trump acts on this, if we end up with tariffs, believe me, This is going to be a big deal when it comes to the markets. It's going to hurt the stock market. It's going to hurt the dollar. There are going to be a lot of implications. And, of course, it's going to be bad for the economy. Whenever the government tries to screw up individual choices, when the government tries to micromanage the economy using regulation, using taxation, because that's what they're doing. If they're going to slap tariffs on cars made by Germans, it's because the government is trying to say, we want a different outcome than the outcome that the free market is determining. In the free market, uh, Americans are choosing to buy these German cars. We don't want them to make that choice. We want to alter the free market by artificially raising the cost of buying a German car relative to the cost of buying a different car and now have a different outcome, not the outcome that would be determined by the free market, but the outcome that is determined as a result of government intervention in the free market. And again, that's when we have problems. And of course, the free market always gets the blame for government interference in the free market. That is the big problem that we don't have a free market, but the government is able to, with the help of the media, always blame the free market for problems that are created not by the market, but by the government and by the fact that the government prevents the market from acting freely and tries to manipulate it to drive a political agenda rather than allowing individuals to make decisions based on sound economics. The government is 
is commanding decisions from the top down based on politics. I just want to wrap this up once again, talking a little bit about Bitcoin. It's hard not to talk about it. It's in the news so much recently. Now for the not only incredibly rise that we've seen. I mean, I saw Bitcoin, uh, I think yesterday it almost got to $2,800 a Bitcoin. And earlier this afternoon, it almost went all the way back down to 2000 which is still very high. I mean, if you look at where Bitcoin started the, the month, started the year, right, we've had a huge rise. So to say it's fallen all the way to 2000 I mean, it's kind of meaningless if you look at a long-term chart. But when you go from 2800 yesterday morning to 2000 this afternoon, I mean, you're talking about a near 30% drop in a span of less than 24 hours. Again, that is a type of volatility that works against the argument that Bitcoin is going to be money. Because clearly, you know, you bought Bitcoin, if you happen to be the guy that bought it at, you know, at, at 2,800 and, and then, you know, now it's 2,000, that is a very difficult uh, thing when you're talking about money. Now, of course, yes, I don't know where the top is. Maybe the guy that bought it at 2,800 is going to be happy when it's 5,000 or 10,000. But how do you know? Maybe it goes down to but back down to fifteen hundred or one thousand. I mean, how happy is he going to be about his new money when uh, he's watched you know more than half of his purchasing power uh, you know go up in smoke very very quickly? But you know, whenever you have a bubble, and clearly this is a bubble, right? You know, whether we're at the end of the bubble or in the middle of the bubble, I mean, it's clearly not the beginning, right? I mean, it's so it's either somewhere in the middle or we're nearing the end, and I don't know that. But one of the things that always happens when you have a bubble is you have all kinds of pie-in-the-sky forecasts for much, much higher prices. And I read an article just a couple of days ago where the guy was making a case for Bitcoin to be $1 million a Bitcoin. And this was a serious article. Now, he didn't say that, well, it's going to be there for guaranteed and, you know, it could be a rough ride. But he basically was arguing that a $1 million a Bitcoin made sense craziest thing now he said you know well that would only be a total market cap of like seven trillion dollars you know which you know in and of itself is an insane number but he tried to relate the 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 market cap of bitcoin to the market cap of all the global currencies like all the dollars outstanding all the euros and i think you add up all the fiat currencies and maybe i don't know what it was 80 trillion and he said well this is only whatever it was 10 percent of that number but it's lunacy to say that the market cap of Bitcoin could ever be that high a percentage. I mean, is it possible? Look, anything is possible. But the probability of Bitcoin ever getting anywhere near a million dollars a coin is so infinitesimally small that there's no point in even bringing it up. But to have articles like this, this is normally what you would get in a bubble. And of course, you know, part of the reason why Bitcoin can never be a million dollars of Bitcoin is if Bitcoin had a market cap of eight trillion dollars, whatever it was, Bitcoin is just one digital currency. There's hundreds more. And the actual market share that Bitcoin enjoys in the digital currency world is shrinking. So if we got to a point where the Bitcoins were worth eight trillion dollars and maybe Bitcoin was 10% of the market cap of all the digital currencies. Well, now you'd be talking about 80 tr- I mean, it's, it's, these numbers are so fanciful. And of course, one of the reasons why this could never happen is obviously the purchasing power, right? As 
Bitcoin get that expensive, people who are hoarding them are going to want to spend their wealth. I mean, you're talking about if for Bitcoin to go to a million dollars a coin, right? You're talking about creating lots of Bitcoin multimillionaires, some billionaires. Don't you think they're going to want to buy some stuff, some yachts, some mansions, whatever? So the minute they try to spend it, well, the, well, now the market comes down unless there's some somebody new that wants to sell their yacht for Bitcoins or wants to sell their mansion for Bitcoins. When you have people with all this wealth and now they want to spend it, you know, look out below. So this is this, this type of number is crazy. I mean, 10,000, 20,000. Yeah, you know. That stuff is possible. Of course, it can go. You know, it can go the other way. Bitcoin can go back down to a hundred. It can go to ten. It can go to zero. And it can actually go. It can go to ten thousand and then go to zero. Nobody knows. But when they start talking about a million dollars, a million dollars for a single coin in a serious article, and the guy that wrote it actually said, you know what? That's not even that hard because he compared the appreciation from when, you know, Bitcoin was just, you know, what a nickel a piece. Right. And said, look, you know, when it went from a nickel to where it is now to go to a million from where it is now is actually a smaller move, maybe by percentage wise, but not by valuation, not by market cap. I mean, to say that that Bitcoin going to from here to a million would actually represent a smaller move. Then from where it was at the beginning to where it is now is completely and utterly preposterous. And, you know, it shows the guy who is writing it has no real sense of reality with what he's talking about with numbers that large. Right. I mean, that would almost be like saying you take Amazon stock, which right now, you know, Amazon is almost a thousand dollars. And I've been talking about this. I mean, Jeff Bezos is very close to overtaking uh, Bill Gates as the richest man in the world. I mean, look at it. The two richest men in the world are living in uh, Washington. But he's very close to overtaking him. But if you look at the move that Amazon has made percentage-wise since it started, you know, let's say Amazon going from $1 a share to a $1,000 a share. And then say, well, it can just as easily go from 1000 to a million without taking into consideration what the market cap would be. Or the fact that, you know, in order to achieve that, probably every product in the world would have to be purchased by Amazon and nobody else. They would probably have to be the only retailer standing. But even then, it might, in order for Amazon to go up as big in the future as it already has in the past, right, given the size that it is right now, people from other planets might have to start buying their stuff on Amazon. So obviously, just because it's made a move in the past, given the the size that it is now, it can't make the same percentage move again just because it's the same mathematical percentage. So the same thing would hold true about Bitcoin. The move that it's made from obscurity to where it is now is enormous, but you cannot repeat the magnitude of that move based on the current market cap of Bitcoin, especially when you consider that it's one currency of a number of digital fiat currencies. And I, I mean, I to call them, you know, the people that like things like Bitcoin and say, oh, we don't like fiat currencies, so we like Bitcoin. Yeah, Bitcoin is a digital fiat currency. That's the difference between a regular fiat currency and something like Bitcoin is a regular fiat currency exists in the real world because it's a piece of paper. And Bitcoin is just a digital fiat currency. But the operative word in both is fiat. Fiat. <laughs>